You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning. It's a great pleasure to be with you this morning uh, to worship our Lord together, uh, to look into his word together. Our text this morning uh, will come from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 20. As you're turning there, let me briefly explain my methodology since this is the first time uh, we've been together. Um, I'll begin by reading the text, and as I'm reading, I'll insert comments into the text. And these comments are intended uh, to bring out themes or textual issues that aren't going to necessarily be discussed in the sermon proper, but they help us to be better readers of the text. After reading and commenting on the text, then we'll pray and we'll begin the sermon proper. That's to help you understand what's happening as I stop reading uh, the scripture and begin commenting. Um, So that's how we'll do it this morning. Uh, Likely you've turned up uh, to Mark chapter 1 verse 14 or you're close, so let me set up this morning's text in Mark's larger narrative. Uh, The first two verses of our text this morning, verses 14 and 15, represent a major scene change in the opening drama of Mark's gospel. Mark, again, he begins his account uh, by by starting with John the Baptist in verse 1. Along the Jordan River, uh, his ministry of, of baptism and repentance, But here in verse 14, where our text begins, John is arrested. And this brings the curtain down on scene one, as it were. And the scene chain happens right in the middle of verse 14. Uh, And the the curtain reopens with Jesus' ministry along the shores of Galilee. And then in verse 16 through 20, uh, we're going to read the account of Jesus calling his first four disciples. Uh, And from that account, we're going to ask three questions about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Please follow along with me as I read, beginning in Mark 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Many commentators draw a sort of foreshadowing of Jesus' death in the announcement of John's arrest in verse 14. And that's because the Greek verb rendered arrested in your English Bibles is actually the same term that Mark uses to later report that Jesus was handed over to the chief priests. It's also of special significance that the verb appears in the passive tone, or the the passive tense in your Bible. The Greek Greek simply reports that that John was just delivered up John is the object of the action, but there's no subject in view doing the arresting. Notice that no one is doing the arresting. It just says that John was arrested. And therefore, the verb, this passive verb, is understood by a number of scholars to be what's called the divine passive. The divine passive is a literary device used by ancient Hebrew writers um, to express that whatever the earthly means or whoever the earthly actors Uh, who were used to carry out a specific deed, God was the ultimate actor. And so they didn't mention the person or the deed. They simply mentioned that it happened, and people understood that God was the one who was directing. 
So Mark is implying here that God is the divine controller and that John was delivered up according to his wise determination and his decree. And then verse 15 uh, provides a summary of Jesus' message, which is remarkably similar to the message of John the Baptist in verses 4 through 8. And despite the similarities, again, a number of scholars like to find a distinction between John and Jesus. They say that uh, kind of a law-grace distinction, that John was Old Testament in law and Jesus was New Testament in grace uh, because Jesus stresses gospel and repentance. Uh, But I'll just say right right up front that I disagree with that entirely. Mark makes an obvious effort from the very opening verses of his gospel to stress the continuity of God's message from the time of the old prophets until John and now on the lips of Jesus. The time spoken of by the prophets, most recently announced by John, has arrived. And in verse 15, note again, the time is fulfilled, another divine passive. God the Father has brought everything to a head in the incarnation of his Son. His kingdom, that is God's rule, has drawn near in the person of Christ. The appropriate response to such a stunning situation is to repent and believe in the gospel. If there's any hint of a difference between the message of John and the message of Jesus, it's one of fulfillment. The time is fulfilled. God's rule, the kingdom, has drawn near. The nearness of God's kingdom will be demonstrated in Mark by a host of miracles. Demons will be cast out. The blind will be made to see. The sick will be healed. These mighty acts, however, do not take pride of presence in Mark's gospel. While these miracles will draw a host of crowds to follow Jesus, the first documented of Christ in his earthly ministry is to draw four Galilean fishermen to himself. It ought to be instructive to us that the first action that Jesus did was to draw people into relationship with him and to bring them into his mission. We read about that in verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, this happened. This happened in time and space, our time and space. The very Son of God walking along the water, calling men to serve in his mission. We want to... We want to know uh, that not only did it happen, but that it applies to us, and it does apply to us. This was you uh, beginning uh, the New Testament church. This was uh, you uh, beginning the next stage of your redemption. And this passage calls us to follow you as well, to join in the mission of redemption that you are calling us into. Father, help us uh, to hear your words. Help us to be Uh, encouraged, help us to be rebuked if necessary, but help us to see, uh, most of all, that you are the divine actor and that you've called us 
and that we can do it because you've empowered us to do so. Help us to hear this from your word, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's been said uh, that the call to discipleship before us this morning in these four men is a pattern for every potential believer. And to say that it's a pattern simply means that it provides a guide for helping us to understand what it means to be a disciple. And this is how we're going to interact with the text this morning, but before we do that, I want to stress, as I did in the prayer, that this account is an unrepeatable historical event. Jesus physically walked down the shore of Galilee, simultaneously cooling his feet in the water while they were layered with a grid of sand as he walked. He covered his eyes from the sun as he looked for the fishermen. He changed vibrations in his vocal cord as he called out to men who were covered in sweat and fish slime. He called them to be his apostles. He called them to be the founders of the New Testament church. Now, there are no apostles here in the congregation, and I doubt that there are very few fishermen. Is anybody want, is, are there any fishermen in the congregation this morning? Now, I guess that there weren't very many because I went on citydata.com and I clicked the button to see what the occupation of, of Anchorage were, and really, there's just a bunch of professionals and management folks uh, in Anchorage. Um, less than half a percent of the people of Anchorage are involved in the fishing, forestry, or farming uh, occupations all combined. Now, this statistic would surprise your average uh, lower 48er, if that's what you call them. We think you're all fishermen. Um, but the point is that our situation today in Anchorage is not exactly the same as the one faced by Simon, Andrew, James, and John. So without minimizing the unrepeatable historical event, we're going to attempt to learn something about Christian discipleship by asking three very basic questions. Who does Jesus call to be disciples? What does Jesus ask his disciples to do? And why can Jesus' disciples have confidence? Three questions, who, what, and why. So our first question then is, what kind of people does Jesus call to be his disciples? Now block out for a moment anything that you have ever read or heard about the gospel story. Have you done that? Now just follow along as I just retell Mark's storyline. He's telling us that the very Son of God has come to earth. He has come to accomplish a divine mission. He identifies with God's people by baptism. He undergoes testing in the wilderness, and then he begins to call people to join him in his mission. That's where we are in the story today. Mark tells us that he calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Who are these guys? Well, let's keep following the storyline. Jesus, the very Son of God, is walking down the shore of Galilee. And he sees some guys throwing nets into the water. And I think it's interesting that Mark explains to us that the men throwing nets into the water aren't littering. They're fishing. You notice that? He takes the time and the space in very expensive paper to explain that they were throwing nets into the water because they were fishermen. And I was so intrigued by this that I was certain that it would become one of the main points of my sermon. And it turns out I was wrong. I couldn't find anybody commenting on why Mark took the time and space. But it does tell us something about it. It tells us something about these men. So it's not the main point. But it tells us that they were fishermen. And fish was the staple food of the Greco-Roman world. 
The fish from the Sea of Galilee were exported and prized in places as far away as Alexandria, Egypt, Antioch, Syria. And according to historians, the Sea of Galilee had at least 16 bustling ports. And the first century general and historian Josephus wrote that there were so many fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee that he was able to commandeer 230 of them for his war in Galilee in AD 68. Fishing in Galilee was big business. And these two brothers were likely very savvy businessmen. So looking for more clues in the text, we can safely say from verse 20 that James and John were working in a family business because they were working with their father. That's how occupations worked in the first century. You followed your father's footsteps. One commentator writes, we have no idea how many generations the brothers' families had been fishing on the Sea of Galilee. But it was quite likely a lot more than four generations. In that country and culture, as in many countries and cultures to this day, a small family business can be handed down not only through generations, but through centuries. It's safe, it's secure, people know what they're doing. If times are hard, you just work harder. And so, extrapolating from the information that Mark has provided us in these verses, we can make a reasonably informed opinion of these men. They were competing in a thriving international business and must have been hardworking, successful, and since fishing is such a physical activity, they were probably in good shape as well. Furthermore, since they're working in a family business, it's a fair guess that they were comfortable with their work and they were set in their ways. And they had their past set out before him and they had a lot of family baggage as well, a lot of expectations from family members. So you and I might begin to think about this and begin to have some doubts about Jesus' choice for fishermen. I mean, if we take the most positive traits, say, being hardworking and successful, we have to admit there are just as many potential risks, like they're saddled with a lot of family baggage. They're set in their ways. So if, if it was up to us to evaluate Jesus' choice, which it's not, by the way, it's most certainly not up to us, but we might say if it was, that it's a draw. The risks are just as close as the, the gains, as the pros and cons are about equal. So we might wonder why Jesus chose not only fishermen, but why these four particular fishermen? Jesus walked down the shore of Galilee, no doubt he passed scores of fishermen, throwing their nets, loading and unloading boats, sorting out their catches. Why did he pick Simon, Andrew, James, and John? But by far the most looming question to me is why did Jesus, why was he even interested in fishermen? The fact that he's calling disciples out of the fishing trade begs the question, isn't he looking for disciples in the wrong industry? Shouldn't he be going to the temple or to the synagogue? But he's looking for fishermen in the weird, for fishermen? Mark will tell us later that most of the religious leaders aren't Jesus' friends, but surely there's some qualified up-and-comers in the synagogue who would be more valuable to Jesus and his mission than these four fishermen. Do you know what I'm driving at? Jesus' first disciples are the most unlikely people from the most unexpected places. We would think that Jesus would be looking for disciples in Jerusalem, but he calls them from Galilee. We would think that Jesus would be calling scribes and teachers and priests, but he's calling fishermen. 
Average everyday tradespeople with responsibilities, fears, dreams, baggage. I would imagine that these four men may have at times wondered why Jesus called them too. Most likely they asked themselves that question when the going was tough, when things didn't make sense, and for sure in the end when they all denied him when Jesus was arrested. Have you ever asked that question about yourself? What does God want with me? Why is he interested in a retail worker, a barista, a real estate agent, a truck driver, a construction worker? Isn't there a more logical choice? Why did he call me, an engineer, a doctor, a teacher, a plumber? On top of being average, I, I just have a lot of baggage. What kind of people does Jesus call to be disciples? He calls people like you and me. Unlikely, unexpected choices. Not many rich, just average people. People with baggage, people that get overcommitted and overwhelmed, people that are flaky and downright sinful. Now, we don't get all these categories out of our text, but we tend to forget that these first disciples had all the same weaknesses that we do. You know, Mark will be the one gospel writer that tells us the most about the disciples' failures. And it's because he's inviting us to identify with him. They were unlikely choices, and so are we. God calls us for his own good pleasure. He chooses us, and he lavishes his grace on us and compassion for reasons that we can't comprehend. Sometimes in the midst of failure, in the midst of doubt, in times of false pride, we need this fresh shift of perspective. What kind of people did Jesus call? He calls unexpected and unlikely ones. Keeping this in mind, we ask the next question. What does Jesus call his disciples to do? If you look in your text, Jesus called these disciples and said that they would become fishers of men. And I'm not really sure if that made any sense to these four fishermen. I mean, we, we make songs about it and we, we think it's obvious, but did these men even get what Jesus was asking them to do, become fishers of men? Maybe he thought he was telling a joke, you know, no longer fishing for tilapia, now we're fishing for men. Did they get it? We don't know. But uh, the, the text we read this morning, Jeremiah, was that not a heavy text, that Old Testament Jeremiah text? I wonder if the disciples thought about that text. Think about their, their situation. They're, they're, the Romans are dominating them. They're in a faraway country. They're, they're under God's judgment. And Jesus calls them to be fishers of men. Did a little bell ring in the back of their head and they think of Jeremiah text and they say, Jesus is calling for fishers and for hunters. Remember that, those things that Jesus was saying that the Lord was searching for? The four fishermen from Galilee that we are reading about this morning are gathering people for salvation, but in the Old Testament text, they're being gathered for judgment. And so here, it's, it's the turning of that story in the end when, in Jeremiah, when God says, I'm gonna bring you back. Well, it's beginning, and he's calling these fishermen to be that salvation, the beginning of that redemption. The fishers that Jesus is calling in our passage will be gathering people not for destruction, but for salvation. They will throw out their nets, dragging men and women out of judgment and into the kingdom of God. These fishers will be trained by Jesus, filled by his Holy Spirit, and then they will take his gospel 
to all the world. For these first disciples, becoming fishers of men meant leaving their full-time job. That's the call that Jesus required of them. And it may be the case for some of us, but it certainly is not the case that only full-time pastors and missionaries are called to be fishers of men. Any follower of Jesus will gather men and women into the kingdom of God by their life, by their witness in the workplace, on the playground, in the coffee shop, or in their neighborhood. You get it, wherever they are. Men and women, boys and girls who follow Jesus ought to look something like fishing lures to people around them who have no hope. And this has always been the mission of God's people, even the ancient Israelites. One of my favorite passages in Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5 through 8, which makes this, uh, this mission of being fishing lures, of being um, attractive to the world, it is, it's just obvious in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. I'm going to read it. Moses tells the people of Israel, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in this land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there who has statutes and rules so righteous as the laws that I set before you today? The people of Israel were called to be attractive to the nations around them. They just needed to obey. And we get the same message from Jesus. If you love me, keep my commandments. So the big idea here is that you don't have to quit your job and go into full-time ministry in order to be a fisher of men. It's more a matter of giving up whatever stands in the way of what the Lord is asking you to do. Now, an important side note here is that it's important to think biblically about what the Lord is asking you to do. I had a young woman tell me that the Lord was telling her to leave her husband so that she could serve the Lord with less baggage. And I doubt very much, matter of fact, I know emphatically that the Lord was not calling her to do that. So we have to think biblically about what we think the Lord is asking us to give up. But keep in mind also that the thing that you have to give up it's going to look a lot different than your neighbor, the fisherman right down the shore. In our text, Andrew needed only to drop, Andrew uh, only dropped his nets, read this. But in verse 20, James and John had to look their father in the eye and walk away from the family business. The call to follow Jesus was the same, but the immediate cost was different. And so I ask you, fishers of men, What is the Lord asking you to give up? And what's keeping you from doing it? There's no one-size-fits-all scenario. This is a matter between you and the Lord. The disciples gave up their jobs that day on the shore of Galilee. But we can share that they they gave up much more than that. Living with Jesus every day, waking up next to the Son of God, began to show them the other things that they needed to give up in their life, the things buried deep within. They had to struggle with those certain sins that entangle or their failure to believe the gospel. 
If you look back at that summary of Jesus in verse 15 that we read, you will see that it involved two very specific commands. What are those two commands? The call to follow, to follow Jesus is not severed from his command to repent and to believe in the gospel. The disciples had to do it every day, and no doubt you and I have to do it. Very few of us are being called to leave our careers. It's more likely that we are called to deny ourselves, to discipline our tongues, to think more of others than we do of ourselves, to cease our striving to find our worth in the work of our hands, to take the story and the message of the Bible seriously, to face our sickness or our death with confidence in God's goodness. It is sometimes easier to imagine that this passage is asking us to do one great thing, one big thing, when really our master is just asking us to be faithful in the little things, to stop being impatient with our spouse, to stop disrespecting our parents, to stop defrauding our girlfriends or our boyfriends, to be better stewards of the gifts that the Lord has given us. Maybe he's calling you to come home from work earlier to spend time with your family to stop gossiping to your friends, to slow down and spend time with him, to put down the game controller, the smartphone, or the remote control. He's calling us to face this world with its temptations, with its brokenness, both in the world and in us, in the strength of the Spirit and the conviction that God is in control. Each one of us who names the name of Christ has been called not simply to take on the name Christian, but to leave behind the things that keep us from following the master. Discipleship is not just a title. It involves daily repentance, daily believing in the gospel, and daily leaving behind the things that keep us from serving the Lord. And we need to leave those things behind in the same manner as the disciples. Again, verse 18, look, they left them immediately. One commentator suggests that Peter and Andrew just dropped their nets right in the water and walked away. A lot of people have questions, but they didn't. They just dropped it and went. What is keeping us from doing the same thing? Who does Jesus call to be disciples? He calls the most unlikely and expected people. And what does he call them to do? He calls them to repentance. He calls them to believe in the gospel. He calls them to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow him. Does this seem a bit difficult? Does it seem weird that he's calling unlikely and unexpected people, and he's asking them to do difficult things? If so, that leads us to our third question that we're going to ask is, why can Jesus' disciples have confidence that they can do what Jesus is asking them to do? And this passage is loaded with reasons for us to be confident that we can do what Jesus calls us to do. The first is the one that we've already covered in my comments. Remember those divine passives that we talked about in verse 14? John was delivered up, and then in verse 15, the time is fulfilled. We should get the idea that Mark is telling us that nothing in God's plan is left to chance. God is behind the scenes making all things work together for good. That's Romans 8, 28. No purpose of God can be thwarted. That's Job 42, 2. Our call to follow the master is based on God's divine and sovereign will and upon the work of Christ 
on the cross for us. Our salvation, our ultimate rest, depends upon God. Now the second reason that we can have confidence comes in verse 16. Did you notice who is doing the looking in this passage? Are Simon, Andrew, James, and John out looking for a master? No, they're throwing their nets into the sea because they're fishermen. That's what they do. They're not looking for a rabbi. You know, back in those days, uh, many people thought Jesus was a rabbi, which uh, is just a respected teacher. It's a, it's a title they use for teachers. And there were a lot of rabbis in Jesus' day. And the more famous the rabbi, the harder it was to become his disciple. Rabbis were not looking for disciples. Young scholars were pursuing and competing for the honor to be the disciple of a respected rabbi. Well, Jesus is no mere rabbi. He is the very son of God. Yet he made his way down to the lake and he walked along the shores in the sun and he called out fishermen. It was his choice. He was the one that came looking for these guys, and he is going to see it through. The last reason that we can have confidence comes in verse 17. Did you notice the command that Jesus actually gave to his disciples there in verse 17? He didn't say, become fishers of men. He said, follow me. Literally, in the Greek, he says, doito opiso mu, here behind me, get behind me. Follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. He didn't tell them to make themselves fishers of men. He said, just get behind me. Follow me. Well, these four disciples did get behind Jesus. And they followed him. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, there was no doubt that Jesus had made them become fishers of men. Uh, Luke writes in Acts 4.13 that when the rulers and elders saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Because it was clear, Luke writes, that the rulers and elders recognized that they had been with Jesus. Followers of Jesus shine something like fishing lures to those around them who are without hope because Jesus is in them. They do hard things, the things that Jesus asks them to do, because his spirit is in them, guiding them, empowering them. The point is, is that you do not make yourself a fishing lure. Your call is to follow Jesus, and he will make you become fishers of men. Now, there are days where this seems easy, where it's a great sunny day, and it's just so easy to be a fisher of men. But it's not always easy, is it? Becoming a fisher of men didn't happen overnight for these disciples. They followed Jesus, leaving what needed to be left. And over time, in many, many foot miles, in many, many mistakes, Jesus made them become fishers of men. Maybe you came here this morning asking yourself, again, why is Jesus interested in me? And why did he call me to do this? Why... Why do I have to make this choice? What, what is this decision that he's asking me to make? And how will I ever do it? We need to take the truth of our passage to your struggle this morning. In your failures, in your doubts, in your false pride, remember that Jesus calls the most unlikely 
and unexpected people. Remember that he does ask us to do really hard things. But remember most of all that the king is on the move. And he is the one making disciples. Jesus is calling unlikely people, asking them to do hard things. But it is Christ who strengthens us and leads us. It's just as Isaiah the prophet prophesied. Listen to this prophecy. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And get this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are weak. We like to convince ourselves through the week that we are strong, that we've got it, we've got this. But then something happens to remind us just how weak we are, how powerless we are. Father, would you help us this morning to understand that this is all your idea. This is your plan. You've called us. You've empowered us. Help us, Father, uh, to give you the glory in all things. Help us not to take the glory for ourselves. Help us not to try to justify ourselves before others or justify ourselves before our own condemning hearts. Help us to repent and to believe in the gospel. Help us to see uh, that you are in control and that you're calling not only us but others. The nations will come to you, Jeremiah says, and they are. Father, we thank you for your word that reminds us of your truth. Encourage us with your truth, we pray. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.